Hey gang, coming to you on video. I was scheduled to preach this weekend and I really wanted to take this one, but I got a pretty last minute opportunity to do something I couldn't turn down. So this weekend I'm preaching at Parkview this way and at Saddleback Church in Southern California Live. Pastor Rick Warren is getting ready for the first Purpose Driven Conference he's done in 10 years at the end of the month. And part of that is he's taking some time off to rewrite the Purpose Driven Church book, which was written before Purpose Driven Life became the best-selling nonfiction book in history, uh, besides the Bible. And um, Purpose Driven Church book was instrumental for us as we were transitioning this church in the late 90s, went to a a conference out there in the early 2000s as we took our leadership to try to understand uh, what this all meant. So it's an enormous honor for me to get a chance to preach at one of the most influential churches in the country, maybe in history, and a double honor to give Rick the opportunity to take some time off to work on rewriting the book that will include the peace plan, which is what they've learned in the meantime about, about how we do uh, disciple training in the rest of the world. And you may or may not know Parkview is the first church to take the peace plan into another country. That's why we talk about Malawi all the time. There's a picture of Pastor Rick giving Parkview an award for being the first church uh, as a part of this, okay? We're helping them make it possible to reach uh, the rest of the world with the gospel. I believe that the peace plan, I mean, if you were around when I got back from Rwanda the first time, you know how much I believe that this is finally the right model of how we make disciples in the rest of the world. Uh, so I'm excited about that, and uh, we are training pastors in Malawi right now, and we will graduate, they will graduate 280 pastors will be trained in purpose-driven principles. Uh, in September, I'll go back over there. We'll, we'll send them out to the others, and uh, we're hoping to be able to transform the country. So pray for me uh, this weekend. I mean, it's, a, it's a kind of a big deal, and uh, pray for Pastor Rick and the team as they're working harder than anyone I know to reach God's lost children. And uh, 3,000 people groups that are left that haven't heard the gospel, three of them are in Malawi, so we're all working together. So this is, this is big, okay? So uh, thank you for letting me uh, go do that, and let's do this. And speaking of that, let's talk about this. Insomnia, right? Let's, let's just pray together as we start, and let's, let us pray the prayer the Lord taught us to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul should take. Amen. I'm kidding. Okay. Some of you are like, was that the prayer? No. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I know that prayer. No, it's not the prayer. Okay. Jesus didn't give us the prayer. I don't know who gave us the prayer. What kind of sick person made up a prayer that teaches your children that they may die in their sleep? And if they do die, there's still a chance that the Lord won't take their soul. Maybe that prayer is the reason we have so much insomnia in this English-speaking world today. I mean, you know, think about it. What is he saying? Night-night, honey. Hope you don't die. And if you do, hope you don't end up in hell with the devil. Sweet dreams. Right? Listen, if you need some help teaching your kids about prayer, um, please consult our children's department. We'd be glad to help you. But nighttime prayers should be comforting. Okay? Rule of thumb, meal prayers should be short. Okay, come on, am am I right? Can I get an amen? Good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. I'm just saying, if if you ever heard that horrible nighttime prayer, you have to admit that one of the things that that keeps me up at night, even if you haven't heard that, is what if the Lord my soul doesn't take? 
So let me help you with this, okay? Because I don't think the prayer is bad. We just need to fix it. This is the one you ought to be teaching your kids. Now I lay me down to sleep. I know the Lord my soul will keep. If I should die before I wake, score! Come on, you got to do the, the Latin American soccer version, okay? If I should die before I wake, score! It's a good thing. It'll be okay. It should let you sleep a little bit better. What should never keep you up at night? Worrying about the existence of God. Worrying about my eternal destiny with God. And worrying about what, if it, what it's going to be like on the other side. Let me explain. I don't lose sleep over the existence of God. I'm not saying I don't doubt the existence of God occasionally. Everyone does. And there are times when that's going to happen. But Solomon wrote that God has set eternity in the human heart. I believe that's why every culture that's ever existed has looked for God one way or the other. And the Apostle Paul wrote, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So again, every culture, every tribe has pretty much tried to figure out, well, how do we get here? How did this happen? I can't try to defend the existence of God in one part of a sermon. The truth of the matter is, the fix for insomnia with this question is not about this question. It's a simple statement of, if there is no God, and I'm just done after this life, this was still a great life. You don't have to worry about it. If I should die before I wake and never wake up again, I have no regrets. I made mistakes. I have regrets. But the way I lived my life in trying to follow God, no regrets with that. If there is no God, then I must be Ferris Bueller because a ton of great stuff has happened to me. But even in the bad stuff that has happened to me, I wouldn't change any of the decisions that I made to live the life that I live. The only reason that anyone would let the existence of God keep them awake at night is really not because of that question, it's because of the second one. It's the second issue. I'm worrying about my eternal destiny. The real thing that will keep you up at night in regards to God is not if there is one, what does he think about me? It's if there is one, what does he think about me? God is watching me, right? He's watching me. And that makes me scared. That makes me worried. Because if there is a God out there, and the world kind of points to that for me, then he's a big, knowing, powerful God. And most of the other religions of the world will make me think that I'm supposed to make him happy so that I can be okay if I should die before I wake. And I think that's because the world doesn't really understand God as a father, at least not a loving one. And they certainly don't understand Jesus. This is why Tim Tebow, whatever you thought of him, always had John 3.16 written on his face in football games. For God, this is John 3.16. God loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or as according to Keith Urban, everything I needed to know. John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16. That's why that's so important. What we're saying is if you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and his blood covers you, you are clean forever. 
It's not about what you've done because you haven't possibly done enough. It's not because of what you've done bad because you've done a lot of bad. It's because of Jesus. And if you have any doubt at all or if you're wondering at all, it's obviously something that you don't want to think about very much. And it's a cause of concern for you and a case of worry for you. And it might even pop up when you're laying there in bed when you didn't want to think about it. Or are you in a situation where you have trouble talking to your children about it? I mean, there, I think there's a couple of reasons that we feel unsettled about our eternal destiny. Sometimes it's because it seems unclear. I mean, because of religion, because of thousands and thousands of years of religion and different ways of doing things, and even because of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, sometimes it's unclear. How do you know who gets in? How do you know who doesn't get in? Do you have to wait until you die, until all the books get settled and you figure it out? And I understand that. But God sent Jesus to the earth to give us a message, not just as a messenger, but to give us the message. He sent him to give us the message that, he, that it doesn't have to be unclear anymore. We don't have to be unsure about the hope of heaven. So this is what the Bible says. This is what God told us. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's clear. Jesus came to us and he said, listen, I'm the way to eternal life. Follow me. That's simple. So before we even asked, he came down and he said, here's the way to get to heaven. It's through me, through Jesus. Okay. That's clear. I know there are different ways to get to Jesus and different things that we do and all those kinds of things. But, but the clear part is following Jesus is the way. Okay. The second reason is that a lot of times we're depending on what we can do to help Jesus out. Maybe a long time ago, you said yes to Jesus, said, I want to trust you, I'm going to follow you, please forgive me for my sins, whatever, but you still feel unsettled about heaven. Maybe it's because you kept on sinning. Well, shock, so did everybody else, right? Maybe it's because you're still back to that, where am I at on the scale thing? Maybe it's because you think you're going to help him out. And I think we all have this picture in our minds, and we're going to get in this long line up into the pearly gates, you know, I don't know where that ever started, and we just step up one at a time until we get up to St. Peter who has this book, right? And in this book, he has all the good things that we've done and all the bad things that we've done. And if the good balances out, he, he, he will have that. But if the good balances out all the bad, we think that's what's going to get us in. And so you're going to be standing there in your mind. This is insomnia. You're going to be you're standing in line and you're going to be like, did you ever like have a teacher grade a test right there in front of you? You know, and they're like, mm. or, or, or at the DMV, you know, you're getting your driver's license and you're, you're watching them and you're trying to figure out how many check boxes they're checking on the way down because you know, you know, if it's more than five or whatever, you're, you're not going to get your license. So this is what heaven is going to feel like, right? You're sweating it out. You're like, I wonder how everything's going to go. That's the wrong picture. I don't know where it came from because the truth of the matter is heaven is a perfect place and it's so perfect that even one of your little imperfections will keep you out. It keeps me out. One bad thought, one wrong action, one sin in your entire life will keep you out of heaven. That's why it can't be about balancing the books because there's no way that can happen. What we needed was for God to send his son into the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What God needed to do is to send Jesus. That's why Jesus said, is there any other way when he was getting ready for the cross? And evidently God said, no, there was no other way because somebody had to pay for your sins and for mine. 
And that's why Jesus came to the earth, to wipe your slate clean and offer forgiveness. So the idea of the long line, I don't know. Maybe there will be one, but Jesus is going to walk up and give you a fast pass, okay? there's, There's a different way because it's not about you. Heaven is a gift, and it comes from God's grace. Here's the message paraphrase of a very famous verse. I mean that you have been saved by grace through believing. You did not save yourselves. It is a gift from God. It is not the result of your own efforts so that you can brag about it. Everything that you have in heaven will be a gift from God. It's not based on what you've done. And the more we base our thoughts on what we've done and whether we're going to get into heaven or not, the more insomnia we're going to have. And the more we recognize what Jesus actually did for us, the more sleep we will get. Max Lucado tells a story about Joe Albright, who had a reputation down where he grew up in Texas as a big, fierce, you know, fair-minded but fearless rancher. And everybody knew you didn't mess around on Joe Albright's land. You know, don't go hunting rabbits over on Joe Albright's land because he he was pretty serious about it and he had a gun. Okay. Well, Joe Albright's son, James, was a good friend of Max's. Max wrote, you know, we rode the bench together on the football team. So, so they were, uh, had an away game one time, and James says, listen, why don't you spend the night at my house since it's such a faraway game, and we'll go together. So after the game, he's driving to the Albright's house, Max says, with his friend James, except Joe Albright, dad, doesn't know that it's Max's car, and he doesn't know who he was. And as he drives up this little dirt road in this ranch house there, they're sitting on this porch as big Joe Albright, standing there with a big flashlight shining at the car, right? You know, standing in his underwear with a shotgun for all I know is what Max says. And he didn't recognize anything about this car. And Max gets out of the car first, and as soon as he does, that light just shines right in his face and kind of freezes him in his tracks. And he said, I was scared to death. Fortunately, James, who had been taking his dear sweet time, finally came out from behind the car and said, oh, hey, Dad, this is Max. He's with me. At that point, when Joe heard the voice of his own son, he put the flashlight down and said, well, come on in, Max. Good to meet you. That's is going to happen when your soul he does take. That's what the scriptures say. That's what, that's what scripture says it will be like for anyone who faces their death with faith in Jesus. And the reason Max could go in was not because of his relationship with the Father. It was because of his relationship with the Son of the Father. The reason you don't need to fear judgment is not because of your good deeds. It's because you know the Son. When your time comes, your heavenly father sees you in the company of his son, and Jesus will say, yeah, hi, dad, this is Tim, this is Sue, this is Maria, this is Mike, whatever. And the father will lower the light of judgment and say, oh, well, come on in to this perfect place. When it comes to my sin, the all-knowing God of the universe has a graciously forgetful memory. Psalms 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. I can't even imagine that. When I think about all the awful things I've done, the evil things that I've done or said or thought, I'm so glad that I'm not going to be condemned on that day because of them. I should be, but I won't be. There will be a trial, I guess, but it will be pretty quick. Not guilty. Penalty has been paid. Now, can I just say this? Um, This is why I believe God gave us baptism. 
Most of you grew up with baptism as a sacrament that was a part of your experience. We do baptism by immersion here and, and for believers here because that's the way they did it in the Bible. One way or another, um, I would love for you to consider that baptism is the reason that God gave, that, 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 that this idea here is the reason God gave us baptism. Okay? Let me read you some scriptures. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, do you see the beautiful symbolism there? If we've been united with him in his death, we will be united in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified so that the body of sin would be done away with and that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You see the symbolism there? That, that, that's, I don't, that's not for God. That's for us. That's why we do immersion. That's why we lower you down in and we bring you back up again. The Bible also says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. Okay? Again, I don't think that's for God. God sees our hearts. He doesn't see the outside. He doesn't see those things that are going on. He sees deep inside. For us, this is a reminder. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Here's, and this is not like mass baptism Sunday. I just, I want you to understand these things every once in a while, okay? There will be a pastor in the tub. If you haven't done immersion baptism, then do it. After the service, just go to the back of the auditorium, either one of our campuses. Somebody will be there to help you, and you'll sleep better tonight. That, that's what it's there for, okay? Um, you know, that's what a wedding ceremony is for. You understand that, right? I mean, the wedding ceremony is a way of demonstrating to yourselves and to the people that, that come into your life that you are committing to each other. You can go down and, and have a justice of the peace do it with just the two of you if you wanted to. You, you, you don't have to do it in front of a bunch of people. You don't have to take pictures. We don't have to have rings. Why do we have all these symbols? So that every once in a while, I look down and I remember that 32 years ago I made a commitment. Why do we have baptism? So that every once in a while I can look back on eh, 45 years ago when I made a commitment to Jesus, and I remember that act of baptism, going down in, coming back up again. Maybe you ought to do it. Maybe you ought to do it today. What should never keep you up at night? Worrying about what it's going to be like on the other side. I mean, if, you know, if there, if there is a God, then I've got this eternal destiny thing I've got to worry about a little bit. If there's not a God, then whatever. I'm done. doesn't matter. If there is a God and my eternal destiny is, as you say, PT, according to Jesus, and I have Jesus in my life, and I have accepted him, and I'm following him, I'm a disciple of Jesus, then maybe I'm still losing sleep because I'm not sure what it's going to be like on the other side. Jesus, Jesus said this to the disciples one day. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I'm guessing that the reason he said don't let your hearts be troubled is because their hearts were troubled. You know, he sensed that. 
So he goes on and he explains, and this won't make sense to you necessarily unless I explain the history of the time. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you if there wasn't room for you, he says? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. All right. What Jesus is saying here is, I am the groom and you are the bride and I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And that was the custom in those days. If you wanted to get married in those days, what you did as the groom is you went and cleared it with the parents. And you went and cleared it with both sets of parents. You know, that's where we got the whole idea of asking you know, the, 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 the father of the bride for her hand. But if you're the groom, you had to say, all right, I want to ask for your daughter's hand and here's where we're going to live. And the tradition of the day was that you would go live at the father's house, the father of the groom's house, okay? I don't, as long as it's not the father of the bride's house, I'm good with that tradition, keep it going, doesn't matter, okay? But, but what I'm saying is, you would go, and, and what would happen is that young man would add a room, usually add a room onto the house or another hut, you know, or whatever, another house on the property so that they could be around the father's house. And what you would do is you would go to the bride and her dad and you would say, listen, don't worry, my father's house has plenty of room. My father's family will have plenty to provide for your daughter. We'll provide a place and she'll have everything that she needs. All that she will ever need, we will take care of her. She's now the groom's responsibility. Okay? Jesus is saying, it's like that. I'm coming for you, and when I come for you, I want you to know that I'm going to take you to a place that's going to be awesome. You're going to be with me forever, and you're going to be under the Father's care forever, and this Father is the most awesome Father there ever was. What Jesus is saying is that really funerals for believers should be more exciting than weddings. And I know we can't process that because we're missing that person. But at a wedding, the best you're going to get is some human being saying, come on, I'll take care of you. I'm committing to you. Live with me. It'll be awesome. But at a funeral, Jesus is saying, come and live with me, and it's going to be awesome. This is why I say, if you have Jesus, you should say, score if you die before you wake, because it's going to be better than you'll ever imagine. And maybe the problem is you, you read Revelation, and it just sounds so funky to you. I mean, I, I got back here, PT, and I'm like, man, what are the locusts? And I don't, I don't get all that. And listen, it probably should sound funky, because it was written in figurative language for people who lived 2,000 years ago, and they understood the symbolism, okay? Here, here's what you need to know about heaven and revelation. I'm going to sum it up for you in modern PT fashion, okay? Heaven is like California, Okay, Disneyland. It's just so, it's so weird for me to think about, process about being in California so much. I have two kids who, uh, you know, now live there, and um, so I'm there all the time. And it, my first time to California was so memorable. Now it's just another long flight with some Southwest peanuts. That's all it is. But the first time was June of 1972, when the Harlow family loaded up the family truckster and drove from Oklahoma City to Southern California. It was hot, 
There was no air conditioning. Some of you, you know, you're remembering back now, vinyl bench seats. You remember vinyl? You know, you'd have to peel it, peel your legs off because it was so hot to sit on. And in the winter, it was like, you know, somebody had sprayed cooking oil all over them and you just went slip sliding back and forth. You're just praying that that door that you hit on your way by, because there was no seat belts, you just prayed that that door was locked and was really well shut. That's who we were. We were on our way to Disneyland. We were the Griswold. Man, we didn't have a dead lady on top, but everything else was just about the same. We would stop, you know, not at McDonald's, not at, not, not at some place, you know, where we spent money. We would stop at little rest stops along the way and have a lunch of Kool-Aid and sandwiches made from the mayo that my mom kept in the little cooler and some, you know, canned meat, spam, 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 or some peanut butter and jelly or whatever, and we would just, we would just go. And it was long. I only have one sibling, a little sister. Dana, and we would trade off sleeping in the back ledge, right? You know what I'm talking about? Sleeping in the back ledge. Nobody cared about seat belts back then for whatever reason. Or, or you would, somebody would sleep on the seat and somebody would sleep on the floor that had that stupid hump in the middle of it because nobody had thought up front-wheel drive yet. I don't know why. I think the drivetrain hump is probably the source of all of my back problems to this day. We had no iPod. I'm an old guy. I'm just going to do this, okay? No iPad. No I nothing. We, we didn't have anything electronic at all. We could never dream of watching TV in the car. We had the radio and iSpy. You with me? iSpy. A cow. It has to be a cow, Dana. There's nothing else out here but cows. For three days, we went to California. But we were still psyched because... We were going to Disneyland. Everything was going to be worth it when we got to Disneyland. My parents had never been there either, but uh, they tried to describe it from the pictures and the trusty AAA information that my mom had brought with her, you know. I just couldn't imagine it. They kept using metaphors and descriptive phrases, and I just couldn't imagine it. That is what heaven is like, people. That's what John tries to do in Revelation but you're never going to be able to figure it out. Let me tell you something. When I finally got there and I jumped out of the tram and I saw the beautifully manicured lawn with flowers and trees and bushes shaped like Disney characters, wow. I ran through the front gate on the main street and I heard all the music and I saw the colors and all the people and the characters and the castle. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before. It was indescribable. And my sister was younger. She was all psyched about the characters, you know? Oh, to be hugged by Mickey Mouse. And there was Donald Duck, and there was Goofy, or was it Pluto? I never could tell them apart. And, and Cinderella, and Peter Pan, and Pinocchio. Even liars got to go to Disneyland. This is awesome. Nothing my parents could have said, none of their words could have captured for me the reality of the dream of being in Disneyland. Walt Disney said his dream was to create a place where adults could be kids again. I don't even know what that meant for a kid. It was crazy. Maybe you have that feeling. Maybe you remember that feeling. Listen, possibly at night when you're having trouble sleeping, you should remember these Magic Kingdom destination verses from Jesus. Okay? Read this one again. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Don't let your hearts be troubled. If you should die before you wake, 
score. It's going to be awesome. The problem, the problem is many Christians feel about heaven the same way your kids felt maybe when you went to Disney. Did you ever have this experience? Have you ever took your kids to, to, to Disney and at some point during the day after you spent $8,000 to get them to Disneyland, did they, did they say, when can we go back to the hotel and swim? Right? Swim? We didn't spend all this money to drive all this way to, spend, to swim. That's not what we're doing. That, that's what we do sometimes, I think. We're like, oh, man, I, I'm sure heaven's going to be awesome, but I like this life. I like what I know already. Maybe that's why Paul wrote, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. All right, listen to John's attempt. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. John was separated from his loved ones by a big sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Little girl was standing looking at the sky one day and said, Daddy, if the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, I can't wait to see the other side. What does John say? It's prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What a great image. A bride who is all dressed up, beautifully prepared for her husband. It's something in which I'm a bit of an expert. I have walked two of my daughters down the aisle. And next Sunday afternoon... I will be making my final approach down the runway. Becca and Andy uh, will be getting married, tying the knot next Sunday afternoon. I can't wait to see Becca in that dress that I bought her. I can't wait to see Becca with those nails that I paid for and the hair and the shoes. She's going to look like a million bucks. Trust me, okay? And I know because I've done it before. I walked my first daughter down the aisle. Boy, that was a hard one. And then I walked my second daughter down the aisle, and it was equally as hard, and I know it's going to be equally as hard this time. There's, but there's really nothing like it. There's nothing like the joy of getting to walk your daughter down the aisle. I mean, I guess if you didn't like the guy, you just like you want your daughter to look ugly, you know, because you don't want to give her to him. But, but I'm three for three on, on grandchild donors, okay? You know, they're, they're, they're pretty good guys. They're even making up a band and calling themselves the Married Sons of Harlow. you got to love that, okay? Um, as the dad of the bride, I get to see them before the groom does. Actually, as a pastor, I get to do that also. So I kind of get a front row seat to this verse. Prepared as a bride is terminology that you can't really understand until it happens. Or in my case, until you paid for it three times. But I won't belabor that point. She's been to the florist, the manicurist, the hair salon. She's been tanning. She's been working out. She's been dieting. It's really an unbelievable transformation. And I really love being the pastor and watching the groom as he sees his bride-to-be. Because sometimes they, they, they like give this initial look. It's like, who is that? Am I at the right wedding? Because, you know, I mean, she's just been so radically transformed as a bride beautifully prepared for her husband. I've never had a groom say, man, why did you do all that to yourself? 
I liked you better in your gray sweatpants, no makeup. The point is, she's prepared herself for this beautiful day, and the union of Christ is going to be the same thing for us. This is what heaven is going to be like. The only thing better than walking your daughter down the aisle is being the groom and seeing your wife walk down the aisle. Hoping with every step that she won't change her mind and pull a Julia Roberts on you and run out the door. I remember vividly 32 years ago when Denise and her dad walked down the aisle in a little church in Springfield, Missouri. And I took her hand and I made my vows and I embraced her. It's a picture of her and her mom getting her ready to go. And, and, and when, I, when, when I make that statement about a bride beautifully prepared for her husband, here's what I know. If your marriage is broken or if you've never had that, you might know even more deeply, even more keenly what we long for more than anything else is this. Not, 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 not just the romance, but someone who will be there with us, a bond that never breaks, a love that never fails, a relationship that never disintegrates, somebody who says, I will be with you forever, and where I am, you will always be. So the choice is up to us. Jesus has put an offer of eternal life, which includes the peace to sleep through the night and the peace to know that the Lord your soul will take. So why would you wait? Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in, Paul says, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. That ought to help you sleep. Let's pray. Lord, I, I don't know, maybe people think it's easy for me to, to say this stuff because I've been believing it for a long time, but you know I have my doubts. You know I have times when I wonder if all of this could possibly be true because sometimes it really is like somebody trying to describe Disneyland to a 10-year-old kid who can't possibly understand it. And many times, I, like all of us, realize that I don't deserve to be there, even if it is as awesome as I could possibly imagine. And so I just want to ask today that you would be with us, and let, let us just wipe this off the table. Let us right now understand that as we get ready to roll into communion, as we, as we listen to this great song and get ready for communion, that we should take just a moment and reaffirm the fact that we are in you, that we are, if anybody has Christ, he is in. And if we've made that decision, let us reaffirm that to you through this sacrament of communion that's going to happen in just a moment. And maybe there are people here that need to reaffirm it. They need to do it so that they can show themselves and you that their heart is there by doing baptism after the service is over. Maybe there are people there who haven't. And they just need to right now say, Jesus, I do. Jesus, I want you to forgive me for my sins. I want you to take me to be with you where you are. I accept. That's all it takes. Be with us in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.